0: Head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. Peers speaking, peers listening. This is a conversation for you. I'm your host, Michelle Akitinor, founder of leading Australian podcast agency, The Peers Project, and your fellow passionate peer. Each week... Hello, peers, and welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast, powered by Shopify. How often do we let ourselves say, I don't know? In a world that's full of immediate knowledge and instant gratification, is there power in being a student? Today's guest, Ahmed Elsa Medici, discovered the thrill of being a permanent learner when immigrating from Egypt to the United States. Gaining a degree in robotics from the prestigious Cornell University. Meant Ahmed soaked up all the knowledge he could and ended up being one of the first data engineers at startup success story, WeWork. He's now the founder of analysis software company, Narrator.ai. In today's episode, powered by Shopify, Ahmed passionately shares the joy of being a student of life, how to own your differences, and why we should all never stop learning. For those of you who haven't yet posted about our podcast on your socials, or if you're new here, welcome. Please to take a screenshot of this episode right now, post it to your Instagram story, and tag us at The Peers Project so that other peers out there can benefit from the wisdom of these incredible millennial entrepreneurs and help us on our mission to empower you all to pursue what you're most passionate about through entrepreneurship. Okay, peers. Without further ado, welcome, Ahmed. Ahmed, welcome to the Peers to Peers podcast. We're so excited to have you on the show today.
1: Thank you for having me. I'm really excited to join the incredible people that I've been before me. So it's gonna be fun
0: it will be and i appreciate that you know you and i recently connected and when i looked into you and all the amazing work you're doing in ai and robotics i knew i had to have you come on the show so i really appreciate you taking the time
1: thank you i've uh, definitely had a career so i'm excited to share the story (laughs) awesome
0: so look for those of us who don't know who you are and what you do tell us a little bit about yourself
1: Yeah. So I'm Ahmed. I founded a company called Narrator. We help um, companies ask and answer questions incredibly fast with high accuracy. And previous to this, I actually used to, I built that WeWorks data team. Prior to that, I was doing AI for missile defense. And before that, I worked on the first autonomous cars. So the first self-driving cars in 2010. So it's been a journey from uh, AI and robotics to modern day, uh, analytics. And you'll probably see that if there's one thread to my story is that I'm really excited about how people make decisions, whether it's humans or robots, and there's ways you can help continue to improve. And that's what we're doing today with Narrator.
0: Oh, I love that. And I can't wait to dive deeper into all of your amazingness and everything you've done and the WeWork stuff as well. But before we do, I'd love to start with a question that I've often found to be very insightful and revealing. And that is, Where did you grow up and how has this impacted the choices you've made in your life and in your career so far?
1: Yeah, so I grew up in Egypt, actually. My family was from Egypt. I was born and raised there. And you get a very different perspective when you grow uh, grow up in a different country. And even when I migrated to the US, my parents were very sheltered. So we went to like private religious schools and like my graduating high school class was like 30 people. And then I went to college and I was like, whoa, everything changed. So I've always had this perspective of seeing both sides of the hype and the reality. Like I think a lot of times when you are used to consuming information from like media and fast pace and tech, you're seeing like the world is like robots are taking over and everything is going on and it's like extreme. And I think that used to be happening when I was in Egypt too. And it'd be like, Egypt's on fire. And I'm like, no, it's not. I'm here. (laughs) And I think I've gotten this really healthy skepticism throughout my life. So nowadays I'm like, okay, I have a really, I'm very, very passionate about separating like what is marketing jargon and what's reality and like what actually happens. Countries like Egypt are really incredible because people make so much less money and like everything is so expensive, but everyone somehow lives and everything somehow flows. And when you understand kind of the power that people have in how humans think, um, you kind of see that there's this incredible thing that we've really cannot replicate, but we can expand. And I think that's kind of what got me excited so much in robotics was really understanding how humans think and saying, how can we help, how can we have computers and robots really do the other stuff so that you can spend more of your time thinking. Um, and that goes to the extreme with narrator, which is like, kind of like in narrator, the human asks the question and you come up with better and better questions. And instead of spending months to go to your data team and go to get a dashboard and come up with the get the answers you need and then ask a follow-up question and then have that take more months until you forget why you even asked the first question. Narrator is there to like kind of be your buddy, to be able to help you asking those questions, get the answer in a couple of minutes, and then be inspired to ask the next question. And I think that kind of human Humanness, I think, really, really came from like growing up in a country where you depended on that literally all day, all night.
0: Oh, my goodness. I find it so fascinating. You know, take us back to the early days. You know, you're growing up in Egypt. You're still trying to figure out who you are, what life is all about and kind of what makes you tick. You know, talk to us a little bit about what you love to do as a child and in your teens, you know, and then I guess what that culture shock or that when you moved to the US, that shift that you experienced was like.
1: Yeah. So, uh, it's a great question. I don't, I don't, I don't often think that far back in my childhood, especially when I give talks, I'm always like, here's the last five years, 10 years of my life, but let's go back further 20. Um, so I, we didn't have TV in my house in Egypt. So like a lot of times we lived in this, this is ridiculous, but we lived in a building where my grandma had eight kids and every kid had a floor with their own kids. So we would have like, all my uncles had like three kids and we would all gather in one of the houses, often like my, my grandma's house on the second floor. And like we would forgot time to like entertain like 20 kids. And my sister's the oldest and I'm the second oldest. And uh, we spent most of our life like teaching kids to dance. It was like really, really funny. Actually, like a really kind of side jump. When I left Raytheon, I was working on like a lot of technology there and I had a patent on like tracking human bodies and really like adjusting like motion. And like I loved dancing so much from my childhood that the first thing I tried to actually start. Was what if we can have like, like a suit that you would wear that would help you dance and it would correct your dancing motion for you by like probbing you with electricity. Like that's how much I was obsessed with it. I was like, wow, that will be fun. <laughs> Turns out it's not fundable. Like nobody wants to pay money for like a skeleton that shocks you into the right dance position. But, um, so that was my childhood, a lot of dancing, a lot of soccer, a lot of just like spending times in like this, like the kid, like, and then the culture shock really came from like, when we came to America, a lot of things were different. One just language. Like I we went to American school in Egypt and I thought like I knew English, but I didn't. They would say like what 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 month is it and I'm like I don't know what the month is. Like don't talk to me about that. I would like I know A for apple, B for banana, C for can-. And then they're like what are you saying? And I'm like oh, it's cold. I need my jacket. They're like what are you, what words are you <laughs> using? And I was like oh my god. Like I'm I'm speaking with such a a confusing accent that it's like tricky. So came here food was different like there's another big shock for me like um we often forget that like (laughs) when my uncles come here they go oh i want an american apple like a real american apple (laughs) like the big one and i'm like yeah because apples are like apples are like this big in egypt like you get them from like the street market grapes are tiny there's no concept of organic or like gmos because you can't afford gmos there like like some farmer is bringing fruit fresh on a cart and giving it to you and you're buying it from there. Like everything is local. <laughs> so I mean, you to like different Love things that. and different sizes. Love and that. just like, it was so funny to like kind of come and experience those differences. Um, And you got to just a lot more things. Like I eventually like went to college, started learning and reading and a lot of things just became so much, there's so much more. We forget how incredible like, the U S is at making so many things available. Like when I was in college and I was like, Oh, you can take any class you want. I was like, what? Like I'm going to max out every single like semester. Like, what do you mean? I can just like, I can take a credit and learn to like, I don't know, like give massages. Like that's a class. I'm like, I'll take that. Oh, I can, I can learn how to persuade people. Like, social influence and persuasion was a class. I was like, Oh, I'll take that. That sounds fun. (laughs) Like so many interesting things that we are so privileged in the U S to, um, have access to that. I didn't have access to in Egypt and that like intelligence and people pushing you to learn more, to try more. Like I remember freshman year of college, I was working in a nano lab and like, I accidentally like damaged like a $10 million machine. Um, Like i was a freshman i don't know what i'm doing and they were like you're a freshman you know what you're doing well pay to get it fixed just don't do it again here's you're gonna be your punishment is one week off no lab and i was like cool like you're just gonna let me do that like you're gonna let me just like break things or like i had access to like sensors that would be a hundred thousand dollars to like do stupid things that i was like this would be cool to put on a car and see what happens. Or I would have like mini robots that I would like leave in the, like have them follow people and see if like my, my people detection can be so good that the robots can start following people and watch how people get rid of them. Like all that stuff is such privilege that, um, really just like got me so excited. And I was like diving head first and like, oh, what more can we do?
0: What more can we do? I love that. I love that you talk to all the positives, you know, the opportunity you got when you made the move, the learning English and the basics, and then also obviously diving into things when you were at Cornell, you know, was there ever a moment there or was there a period there where you were just struggling with trying to assimilate with having a different accent with you know coming from somewhere different and if so you know how did you navigate that and for our peers out there listening who perhaps they're also an expat living somewhere else you know whether it's an oz here in oz or in the us or wherever it may be and they just feel like they don't fit in what advice would you give to us
1: Yes, yeah, so that's a great question. Um, really, really incredible. Uh, so a couple of things happened that you are not used to. When I went to Cornell and I was like one of like three Egyptians there, like, and I became like rare and people would be like, you have such an exotic name. And I'm like, I literally had the same name of half of Egypt. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like at the most standard name that you could exist. And I was like, I didn't know that I was exotic or like rare. Or like these things that became so unique. I was just like, I didn't know this was a thing. And the same thing happened when, like, we would eat food. Like, there would be times where I've actually gotten so embarrassed by the way I was eating. Like, we would normally eat the entire chicken. Like, we would get, like, a chicken, and you eat it down to the bones, and you, like, eat the cartilage. just, like, that's how I grew up. Like, when you got fish, it was, like, a whole fish. There was no, like, filet. It was, like, you removed the head, and you ate it. Like, that's just how I always eat. Yeah. like, when I was doing that in, like, a lunch, and I would get embarrassed, I would, like, go hide somewhere else and eat by myself. And so we all, I think everyone who's ever been, like, different has had a moment where they've been like wait this is weird like everyone's looking at me like i'm the crazy one when you are like younger and you're having these issues you just haven't peaked yet i'm like as you get older these things become like kind of cooler and you become way more badass like you're like like nowadays i'm like oh i eat a fish whole they're like wow oh (laughs) like this is really impressive i'm like yeah like so is all (laughs) the other countries but like whatever um so all these things that used to like, I think the culture has shifted where as you're younger, like you want to simulate, you want to be the same. And as you get older, you realize that being the same is kind of ordinary and that's boring. And you want to be different. You want to be extraordinary. You want to be unique. You want to stand out. And those things end up getting rewarded and get exciting. And the world just behaves differently toward you. So I've just kind of tended to own a little bit more of like, well, this is different and I don't do it that way. And like, and I think people naturally tend to be good. Like I don't experience anyone like, or maybe I'm just kind of oblivious to be honest. Cause I have been told that I'm sometimes oblivious when people are being mean to me, Like, um, but I'll just be like, assume like, you know, like, Oh, you don't know. I eat this way. You eat differently. Like, I guess we're going to have to have a dinner party. Like, this is the solution to our <laughs> problems. Like, let's just come together. Like, I want to try your meat bo- your meatloaf and I'm going to give you my rabbit and we can see what we like and we can enjoy it. Like, it's so, so funny. And yeah, there's just like the world is so big and there's so much more that like really trying to be what's normal is so hard. So anyone who's in this state, like realize that like you're just starting, you haven't peaked yet. And when you peak, all these things that are like appear to be dorky, weird, nerdy like become sexy, cool, exciting and you're like, oh wow, who knew? <laughs> like <laughs> this
0: is the fun who part of life. Knew?
1: Yeah.
0: <laughs> Couldn't agree more. I love that. So I want to deep dive into your time at Cornell and kind of after that initial move. So, you've Landed in the US, you know, you've kind of grown up in kind of a sheltered environment to where it is, you know, 30 people in your graduating class. And then you move, I'm guessing, to New York and head to Cornell. Talk to us a little bit about the decision to go there and then what that period of your life was like, you know, what did it teach you about yourself and kind of the world around you?
1: I really, really loved Cornell. Like, my decision to go to Cornell was, I was looking at colleges, and, like, my range of college applications were absolutely ridiculous. Like, I was, like, <laughs> applying from community college to, like, Cornell. And uh, I remember, because I had such a low reading SAT score that I was actually the lowest SAT score to enter Cornell that year. Like, that which is people were like, we didn't know if you were going to either be incredible or, like, I failed the first year. Which is like a hilarious thing. Cause like, so I get to Cornell, like I know I'm behind like really intensely. I thought I was smart. I know I have a skill set, which isn't like math and I'm good at some things, but like these kids, everyone there was like top of their class and brilliant people. And the thing that I had going for me, which I think is really what changed my experience was I really wanted to learn. I can tell you a story of like how stubborn I was to get into classes. I once like wanted to take this class uh, that was called leadership theory and practice. And it was my third year of college and it was uh, an MBA course. You had to be part of the MBA school. You had to submit an essay beforehand and you had these prerequisites. And of course I didn't do that. Cause I didn't know that, that you had to do that. So I was like, I get there and I'm like, Hey, I'm like a junior in, in engineering school. Like I want to take this class. And it was like a very, very intimate class, 30 people class. Like the professor was an incredible person. And he was like, no, like you can't. And I was like, cool. I want to learn from this class. So I'm going to come and sit to lectures and you can just kick me out if you want. And he's like, I won't kick you out, but you won't get credits and you won't be able to do anything. And I was like, cool. I don't care. So I would sit in the class and learn. And then I would submit the homework and he would like the first homework I submitted. And he was like, you're not part of the class. I'm not going to grade your homework. <laughs> and I was like, cool. Like just throw it out. Like, I don't know what you want for me. Like I, I'm having fun in this class. Like I'm enjoying myself. And then Like it was toward the last end of like ad drop period where you like, like you're either in the class or not. And he was like, are you planning on coming here for the rest of the semester? I was like, yes. And he goes, you know, like, you're not going to get any credit. You're not going to be able to do the exams. You're just going to sit and listen. And I'm like, that works for me. And then he's like, you're so annoying. Whatever. You can be part of the class. (laughs) I enjoyed the class. (laughs) I was just like, I was like, this is great. Uh, so like stuff like that, like I just loved the fact that I get to learn so much in these different subjects. Cornell was such an incredible school because it's like nine schools or seven schools and it had like engineering and I loved engineering and I got to do all this cool stuff in engineering and lab. And like I got to do like, um, schools in like the communication school and in the MBA school and I took classes in like the art school and I would run around taking all these different classes that kind of made it. And I've told people like I've, I've been to back to Cornell many times and I've given many talks. And I, uh, I always tell them, I'm like, I'm like, don't, don't have a 4.0. Like don't try to get an A. like getting an A, at Cornell is dumb. And they're like, what? I'm like, get, get a B and take the other, the other, like 20 hours you're going to get that would have been used to get the A and go take all these other classes that you're going to love. And, um, and it paid off. Like, I think I ended up not dropping out of Cornell. Like I didn't fail. I became like one of the most impressive Cornell students, like according to business insider. And then like the. I give with the graduation speech and like ended up becoming this part of my life. And I go back to Cornell nearly every year and give a talk. So like I've been, it was a truly incredible experience, um, of just desiring to learn. And I think that's like always the thing that people forget, like in different parts of your life, you have different stages. And there's a point where you give back what you've learned while you're learning something different. And there's a point where you're just like, your job is to learn it's incredible as like a student, like you can just like literally ask for anything and people will just do it because you're a student. You can be like, Hey, can I hop on this call with you? And like your investors, I want to learn how investor conversations go. And like, most people be like, Oh, you're a kid. Sure. Like, come like Like I want to play with these things. Can I try building autonomous cars? Like, yeah, sure. Go ahead. Like there's an entire institution that has a lot of money with the only one intention, which is to make you learn. And that's it. There's, you don't have to give anything back. It's kind of great. You get to be so selfish in college. You're just like, I'm here to learn and I'm going to ask what I want. And you're going to give me everything
0: I want. It's going to work out. I love it. How can we get better at leaning into learning? And more so than that, how do we develop that persistence that you had in that class to just waltz into an MBA class and ultimately get a seat at the table? Yeah.
1: So I have two advices that I always give people and like, they've changed my life personally. One, like no one thing ever breaks you or breaks a company or breaks your career or breaks your college. No one thing actually matters. No one thing will make your business. No one thing will break your business. No one thing will make your relationship. No one thing will break your relationship. So like as you go in life, I think we hold these like specific one-time moments as like such important thing, even though they actually never matter. Like there's no one time in any history of any company that one thing broke or make it. It's usually like a series of things in a row that end up leading to a disaster or a series of things in a row that create something great. It's not like a moment. People love to cherry pick their story and then there was then Apple launched the iPhone and it became the next thing. No listen, there was like people hated it in the beginning and there was drama and there was like shitty products before. And there was it's there's a million things that happen that lead to a situation. So if you know that nothing actually no one thing actually matters you can kind of go through life and like take a lot more risk because you will bounce back because that, that one decision will never matter. The case is like nothing really ever hurts you. You're kind of just like able to go forward. So I think that's a huge thing. And I think the second thing is like, we have this like huge doubt in our mind. Like I made a commitment when I, was, um, when I joined WeWork. I remember I was like transitioning from like being very, very knowledgeable about like AI and algorithms to like doing data. And I knew nothing about data. Like I knew about like using data, but I didn't know about like data modeling or like warehouses or like sources of data and all that stuff. I didn't know SQL. And I was like responsible for building out a data team and a data org. Um, and I go to the first stand up with like, I was a part of the engineering team because the company was tiny then. And uh, they all were talking and they were all like, ah, Kubernetes, blah, 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 blah. I'm working on this. And it was just like, it sounded like they were saying Pokemon. There was just all these technologies that they were being bombarded to you. And I realized I just stood there quietly and I felt like shit for not knowing anything. And then I realized like, this is so stupid. Like, again, my job is to learn so I can do my best job. Like I'm going to suck it up. And every time someone says a question, I don't understand. I'm just going to be like, excuse me. I don't know what that means. Explain it to me, which it turns out you can do for your whole entire life. Like I tell today, like I have been to many, many, like, excuse me. I don't know what that means. Can you explain it to me? One, the person who you ask loves it because they get to brag about how smart they are, which is great. They'll tell you two, everyone around you loves you too, because you just explained something that all other people didn't know. So when I started doing that, just being like, Hey, I'm just, I don't know. Like I just was very confidently being like, excuse me. I don't know what that is. I just got to learn a lot more. People took me on and wanted to teach me more. I got to experience, learn faster because people were just teaching me by experts. And then it just like kind of cascaded. So for everyone who was like worried, like, First of all, it doesn't matter. And second of all, you can always ask, like it's literally just like, say, I don't know. Saying I don't know is way better than being quiet. And I think that's the fear is like, you're like, oh, they're gonna think I'm stupid. It's like, no, like, and if they do think you're stupid, great. Like have them tell you why you're stupid and learn something new. Or if they're gonna like judge you for not knowing that's like, that's a their problem. Like you just tell them, excuse me, that seems like an insecurity that you have that you don't feel like I'm allowed to it. I think you should talk to someone about it. Like, and then it becomes hilarious and you move on and it's great. So it's just like realizing that we're so much more open and we can learn so much more. And that's what we should spend our time doing. Like, just like asking. Like, it's just, it's such a hard thing because we never learn. like, it's kind of part of the confidence that you grow, as you get older, you get. Like, you're just not used to saying those things. Like I work with a lot of students and I mentor a lot of kids. And a lot of things I make them do early on is like, I get them just to say words like, I don't know. Um, Can you explain this to me? Know that it won't matter, go into your life, keep going, and just pursue that desire that you have. And it turns out like, it pays off.
0: At what point for you, did you discover that? And did you shift from feeling perhaps a little bit self-conscious and not as confident to, hey, I know my worth. I know what I'm about. And I'm just going to ask, like, when did that happen for you? And, you know, was it a pivotal moment? And if so, what was that transition like?
1: Yeah. So the answer is that it happens in many stages of your life. So like, Mm -hmm. um, I think like going into college and realizing that like, no, no, I'm smart and I can do this. Like I can do this work. Like I'm smart. I can handle this stuff. And like, I will just like know it. Like, that was like the first thing I built confidence in is just like intelligence. Like I'm smart, I'm capable. Um, As you continue through college, you're like, oh wait, I can also like communicate my ideas. Like I have these great ideas and I can communicate them. As you get older, I realized that I can make people around me very comfortable and I can inspire people through words. Um, As I got older, I was like, wait, like I was like, a insecure. I was, I was like, wait, I'm a good looking guy. Like, <laughs> I like maybe start going to the gym more. I'm like, wow, I'm good looking too. This is great. Wow. I got this whole package going for me. Um, and then like, uh, there was all these internals. Like I, I was in therapy for a while, still in therapy. Everyone should be in therapy, but, uh, yeah, being great. in therapy, I was, I was like struggling with like my family and like a little bit of identity issues and like not being religious while my family's super religious. And, and then I was like, wow, my opinions on like religion and the world is also great. Like this is not, nothing's wrong with these things. You kind of get this habit and you go through it. I tell this to my brother. Actually, it's really funny. My brother is like always panicking. And he's like, Ahmed, like, you have to understand, like, if I fail this exam, then I can't go to med school and blah, 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 blah. And he's like in med school now. And he's like, oh, if I don't do this exam, I'm going to like have to stay an extra year. And I always tell him the same thing. I'm like, Amir, how many times have you had a situation in your life where you thought, like, if something goes wrong, like the world's going to end, like every single, like two weeks. How many times did that thing actually happen? Never. How many times did your panic help at all? Like, did, did it ever change anything? No. So, you know what? Like, just like try not panicking and panic when it goes wrong. Like now, if this like 90% of the time will work out, 10% of the time you'll panic. You've just reduced your panicking by 90%. I feel like you're welcome. <laughs> like, you should just do that. And um, so I think that's like, end of the day is like, you kind of like get different levels of confidence as you go through life and realize they're more. And the fascinating thing, and I, everyone who's listening will like vouch for it. And if you haven't done it, you can just pretend and it works. I think you built also this like somehow because of being foreign, like you just have this idea that like you're a little bit not good enough because you're like not white. It's like a thing that you have to get overcome. Like I think every immigrant at one point goes like, oh wait, I'm like you're not that. But I think you eventually start realizing, well, no, no, I'm really good looking. It's fine. And then people go, Oh yeah, you're good looking. You're like, see, I was right. And then it's like somehow like becomes the thing that like now is like standard. And I think it's just confidence. Like it's just like you and people see it. Mm. Like I don't have an accent now. Like at one point in college, I was like, mm, I'm going to get rid of my accent. And they were like, what? I'm like, yeah, I'm just going to, it's going to go, it's going to go away. It's going to stop having an accent. I'm going to speak perfect English. And they're like, okay. And I was like, I'll take some acting classes. I'll do some. I'll speak only English for the next couple of years of my life and today I speak and no one knows that I was born in Egypt. <laughs> like, like it's it just somehow just happens if you just do it and believe to your core that it's gonna happen. Like you're way more capable. You're like it's a famous quote, you're powerful beyond measures. Like it will work. And if you don't believe me, you can email me and I'll yell at you and tell you that it will happen.
0: <laughs> Meb will be all of our mentors when it comes to this. <laughs> Oh, I so appreciate everything you're saying, you know, and I think even for myself, although I was born here in Oz, you know, my parents are from overseas and it's always a thing, you know, you look different and you think, why am I not like the others? And does that make me less or does that make me whatever? And I think you're just so right. It's just such a process of just Letting go of that self judgment. It's definitely something that I'm still working through as I go through my personal journey. But I think, I just think it's so powerful, everything you're saying. And I hope our peers out there are resonating with this as much as I am. But I want to dive a bit deeper into your business journey. So, you know, you're, killing it at WeWork after asking all of the questions and finally figuring out what you actually have to do. You know, I think it was in 2017 that you decided to leave that business after growing it, I think, for a period of about two years, um, and I think you grew the team to, like, a big data team over there. But talk to us a little bit about the decision to make the pivot and go out on your own.
1: So I joined WeWork early on and then left and then came back. So I had this like really interesting relationship with WeWork where I joined at employee number 40 and then left and then two years later came back again uh, to join WeWork in 2015 and then stayed there for two years and then left to start narrator. So it was really interesting because I had an incredible time at WeWork and WeWork has been nothing but incredible. I always, like, there's a lot of press about it, but from my experience, it was truly phenomenal and uh, very supportive. And when I actually went to decide to leave, like I, like two months before I started Narrator, like I was meeting with like the CTO of WeWork and we were, and like the CEO and Adam and like um, Artie, the CFO and talking about like what it is that I want to do with Narrator and what why I'm starting a company and what I think I should do. And there was a lot of like involvement. We work in, um, in supporting me into like doing The Last Step. They did want me to build it as part of WeWork, but I decided to do it separately. But it was a great like um, supportive Experience. So why did I start a company in general? I actually didn't want to start a company. I actually think starting companies like so terrible at India. It's like, why would I do that? Um. Uh, so what happened with rework is that I was building the data system and with my team and the problems that we were facing were really ridiculous. Like it was so, I don't know how familiar you are with data, but like anyone who's listening to this podcast, if you're familiar with data or you're not familiar, this is either going to sound like the hardest problem or the dumbest problem. So if you want to know how many people that came to your website called you afterward, seems easy. Like if you're not a data person, that question is like, duh, like count, came, called. If you're a data person, you're like, that's a two months of like my life to answer that question. That is an extremely hard data question. And why it's an extremely hard data question is the fundamental problem is like doing that question requires so much things to have to happen and dealing with like different data sources and combining it in different identifiers and all these different pieces of things to answer such a simple question. On top of that, if you work in data, you're used to your CEO yelling at you saying, hey, these numbers don't match. Why do numbers not match? And what happened was we were like using the best-in-class system. Like we were like, let's use the most, the best-in-class, the Spotify, uh, Luigi and um and Looker and it was Chartio at that time. And then people started switching the tools. And it was like, I was using Airbnb's Airflow and using Looker and Tableau and Wave. And then we built our own version and we used DBT. These are all like the top stacks that were at that time were like the best practice data system. Yet every single stack helped you kind of manage the problem but no one solved it. Like the same problem existed. And it was for me, it was like what there's a fundamental flaw in how we think about data that leads to these problems. So like being like the annoying questionnaire person I am, I actually ended up going to all a lot of a series of companies. I was like, I'm just going to go to all the big companies now that I have like we work in my backing and say, how do you solve this problem? And like went to Netflix and Airbnb and like Spotify. And I think I I talked to like smaller, like Datadog and different companies. And it's like, oh, that's just, that's the nature of the beast. That's just data. Like that's just how everyone just, you deal with it. That's why you need a huge data team. And you do it you just like, welcome to the reality of data. So that was just not good enough for me to just be like, this is reality. So I actually came, had this new idea that was like, what if all of data looked the same? So there was like this whole philosophical problem that I was like obsessed with. Like I was like, okay, right now this is confusing that this question is so hard to answer yet everyone I talk to understands that question. Every company can know how, every company understands this question, yet it's such a hard thing in the implementation to answer for every single company. Uh, So what if all the data looked the same? The idea was what if all the data in the world looked the same Then we can figure out how to answer this question once and everyone can reuse the answer. And this case idea was like, what if I can standardize all of data? So imagine if every single company's data could fit in one long Excel sheet. That was like 11 columns, very long. And this one Excel sheet is all you needed to answer any question that anyone asked in that company. That would be really cool. And if you standardize it, then you can start doing kind of like interchangeable parts and reusing algorithms and reusing analyses and reusing thinking And really doing a lot of things very very fast because everything is standardized and you just solve two problems. What does that standard structure looks like, and how do you make this standard structure answer any question, which are not they're very hard problems. Like I left narrator with this idea on the napkin that I can standardize all of data and use that standard to answer any question. And like it was so funny because you forget that when you build a company, no one understands what you're talking about. Like like literally, I'll like say these things and I'm like I'm, I'm like listen. I'm like trying to raise money. And I, I was very lucky. Like my best friend who was from WeWork ended up investing as our first round. And like we later on did YC. And even in YC, they're like, we have no idea what you're talking about. Like, this doesn't make any sense. And I'm like, yeah, I know, I know, I know. But like imagine in a world where all the data looks the same. And they're like, wait, like what is this weird assumption? Like how are you going to get all the data to look the same? And I'm like, well, like just like give me a second. So anyways, actually, so started narrator, started tackling this problem uh built sort growing my team like my uh my first uh person who joined me who later became a co-founder um he he like two and a half years in he was like i finally understand narrator he's been working with me for two and a half years before he was like wait i get it i get it i, I get what you're doing um so it took t- it took about three years to get narrator to work um and Nowadays, it's a very, so like, just like kind of giving the journey. So like, it started with this, like, really problem that I was like, this needs to be solved. Like, I really thought that if this problem isn't solved, the world of data is like screwed because we can't keep doing this yeah. for another 10, 20, 50 years. Like, it's been the same way for the last 50 years. It's going to continue to be the same way. Marketing tells you that all data problems are solved and you can use AI and Watson and all these fancy stuff. And people can't answer simple questions. And you're like, you're looking at Google and you're like, and looking at Microsoft and you're like, you can't do this either. Like, here's an example. Here's a great example. Apple, Apple, Apple tracks everything you do. Every time you're on their website, they track everything you do. Every time you open your phone, they track it. They're tracking, collecting all this data. And if you call Apple support, they're like, have you looked at the FAQ page and followed these steps? Even though they, they know that you are on the website, but they can't actually combine that data to tell it to you. Like, leading edge companies cannot solve this problem. So it's a really hard problem. And it's ridiculous that we're d- still in 21st century, hoping that some sales rep wrote the right notes so that when you call again, like they have no visibility in what's happening, even though the data is captured, it just can't be used. So so I went to solve this problem two years later and finally got it working. There's a, like a long, dramatic story of like, almost running out of money, like firing, losing half my team, like disasters of like trying to convince the world that we did. I got laughed out of so many rooms. They would be like, if this works, you've solved data, but like, there's no way this could work. Here's all these companies that have died trying to do what you've done. Why are you doing this? Like, and I'm like, but when it works and they're like, I don't care. Um, and part of the thing about saying, like being really just like clueless and being like, it's going to work. It's going to work. It's going to work. And like, Full honesty, I think I had, like, an idea of, like, solving, like, 30%. But, like, now literally every single day I ask people to ask me any question and our customers use it and we have been able to answer every single question that we've ever been asked with this one table that's 11 columns. Like, no, it it works. And it does, it, it goes from question to a full detailed analysis, thought process, answering it, giving it recommendations in minutes, flawlessly. And companies all sizes from like humongous companies to small companies, um, are using it to make better decisions. And it, like anyone, if you search my name in LinkedIn, you'll see people like talking about why it's the most game changing revolutionary thing they solve. Like if you go to any data channel and you ask like, Hey, what do you guys think about narrator? They'll tell you like, it's an insane thing that it works. Like it is magic. And I'm amazed. I like, I every now and then I'm like, whoa, dude, this is this is kind of cool. Like, I know that's what it's taking me months. This the fact that it works is truly, truly a phenomenal experience. But I think that's just kind of the there's a great book called Um Food by Randomness by Nassim Talib. And he talks about like, don't look at companies who made it big, look at companies who made it long, like who survived longer. And I think that's just like it has been a long journey in narrator, but we are trying to do something really different and really changing. And I think about the reactions that I used to get when I first started this company and what people would be like, you are insane. This makes no sense. There's no way this will work. You are this to people being fans they are like, oh, my God, this is revolutionary. I recently had a friend message me who has messaged me probably like every six months, letting me know that like, oh, what about this case? This thing will never work here. And then I just got a message that was like, I fundamentally believe that this is the right approach and the only approach everyone should start using. And I was like, oh, you changed your mind. He's like, yeah. He's like, I've been thinking about it and I still can't figure out a way to like break it. Wow. Like this is what you should do. <laughs> so it is, I think for anyone thinking about starting a company, like I think you, it is a gruesome process and you're going to be like rejected and it's going to be miserable and it's going to suck up for most of it. But just remember like, you have to like really, really like love the problem you're solving and just take those wins early on. Like when a customer would be like, wow, I did this thing. I'd be like, wow, that's so cool the customers using it. And like today I still get like excited and like, I'm okay. Like I, I think I, the last question I'll say is the last thing I'll say, it's a long-winded answer. But um, I asked this question to a lot of people who are building companies too, which I say, if your company didn't grow and you got to do what you were doing today, every day for the rest of your life, would you be happy? And my honest answer is yes. Like I really do love, I use my product every single day. We do like I'm I was literally two tabs open right now using it to build our next board deck for like things. Like I use it every day. I love our product. I love working on it. I love seeing our customers use it. And like whether we become a trillion dollar company, a billion dollar company, or stay the size we are for the rest of my life, I'll be happy. Like, and I think that kind of uh puts a lot less pressure on me to in building the company like I get to kind of continue without really too much fear or worrisome
0: wow I love that oh my goodness I'm just taking it all in Ahmed you know I just think a question I've got for you on that is how do we keep going when we feel like there is no light at the end of the tunnel, everyone is laughing us out of rooms and we start to doubt ourselves and everything we thought was true. How can we keep going during those dark times of business?
1: Yeah, it's a great question. How do you keep going when everything looks so gruesome? Well, I think there's two things that you should do is don't die for your company. Like, I think that like step one is like, it should never feel like when you get to a point when you're like, I'm going to die for this, like, don't get to that point. Like quit your company. Like I'm like legit. Like I'm very much anti the idea of like eat ramen and struggle. Like, no, pay yourself a decent salary, be comfortable, be happy, work normal hours, like realize that this is something you're trying to create, not your life. Like I th- like people love putting their like labels at their companies. Like, are we narrators? Cause we work at narrator. I'm like, no you are Brittany, you are Matt, you are Sam and you work for narrator. Narrator is your job. It is not your identity. If narrator goes away, you still exist. So like step one is don't put that entire, like my life is this company. It's not like, I love what I do. And I'm like probably as passionate as you can be about a company. And like, if narrator somehow explodes, like I'm not like, I will be probably sad that I lost the same, but I'm going to be fine and move forward and like do the next thing. Like life will move on. Um, so don't make it the, that your life depends on it because then you can't think straight. And second of all, realize that like you all you have to do is continue doing it, not succeed. Like this, like this whole, this pressure is like you, you just have to survive. Like you survive long enough, you'll make it because like your company can't like the other will die. So like just try to survive, like stop trying to become the trillion dollar company just survive. And what that happens when you survive is like every couple of months you do something a little better and you get a little better and you get a little better and you get a little better and and your company continues to grow. And just because you're surviving, like there's only two options. You either are dying or surviving. And if you're surviving, you're kind of growing. Like don't try to compete with the, we're not growing fast enough. What about 20 over 20%? And don't worry about all that. just like kind of go forward and try to survive. And if the company's not your identity, I think you'll be able to think a lot clearer. And realize that the other thing I'll say is, which is the thing I'm gonna keep saying them is you're not alone. Like there's two mentalities that I think people have that drives me crazy. One is there's a fire because you're like, Oh my God, if I don't like this company's not has a hundred million dollars, like bird, bird was worth a billion dollars in a year. Great. That's bird thumbs to you. Like, I don't care. Like don't try to compare yourself to any of these fucking companies or metrics. Who cares? Like who cares? Apple went bankrupt. Who cares? Like all these things, who cares? Just go with your, you have your own journey, kind of put your blinders on and like you're doing it because you love it and you want to do it and you want to see it happen. Keep surviving. Keep going forward. Don't worry about what everyone else is doing. Second thing is ask for all the help. Like it's so funny that we literally are so bad at asking for help. It's like the thing that like outsource everything. Ask for help first. Like you have your friends, you have your family, you have your coworkers. Like you're like, I'm feeling like shit. Make me feel better they'll figure it out. They will always do. Just like say it out loud. When I started narrator, my first sales meeting I went to, which remember I have this product that no one understands. I have now people gave me some money without understanding what it does. We have a plan that I don't know what it is with a roadmap that is beyond confusing with like with me like a technical founder that's like trying to like today's people still are like it's been five years and people are still like whoa, this is very different. This is so unique. Back then, like without a product, it was just like figments of insanity. And I asked my investor, my first investor, which is really funny. I was like, can you come into the meeting with me and pitch narrator for me? Because like, I'm not good at this. And he did. He came with me. He did. And he pitched. And he was like, was, like this is what narrator is doing. And this is the vision. And this, and like he sold it because his specialty was like making it sound great. Like that's what he does really well. And that was incredible. And then when my first engineer joined me, I hired him from his company and I was like, oh, do you think that the company that you that we, we just, you just quit to work with me will ha- use Narrator as a product? Like, they know that you're good and they trust you. Let's just go try to sell them. That was our first customer. <laughs> like, we like, it was like this huge thing of like just like literally asking these people to like do things for you and you do it. And like, it is insane because like, I do that today, too. I met a student three years ago at Cornell, and he's like, um, I was like, if anyone needs help, like reach out to me. I'm glad I'm here to help. And he was like, can I put a calendar, a recurring uh, meeting on your calendar for an hour every single week for you to like kind of like to help me through like college and what should I do and all and, like everything? And I was like, sure. Until today, I have a one hour meeting on my calendar that still is recurring. That he has now went, graduated college. He worked for one company, switched companies and every week we chat. Like I love it. He loves it, but all you had to do is say, Hey, can you do this? And I was like, sure. Like it's the world's really trying to help you. Like there's so many people more on your side than against you. Like it's often like everyone is like cheering you on and your head is like in panic. So like start leveraging those people who are cheering you on.
0: So true. Oh, Ahmed, I could listen. We could listen to you for days. This is just so, so good. But I am mindful of your time. So, as we finish up, I've got one final question for you. But before I ask it, I just want to take a moment to acknowledge you, Ahmed, for the incredible work you've done and that you're doing, for showing us, and particularly us young, ambitious millennials, that if we have that goal that vision and that problem and desire to solve a problem we actually can go out there and make it happen no matter how crazy and wild it may seem and for that we really appreciate you
1: and i'm excited to watch you on those journeys and everyone who's doing it like you at least have you have one fan here i promise
0: (laughs) i love it and the final question is how we finish every episode of the peers to peers podcast and that is what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about?
1: Oh, wow, what is the value of pursuing what you're most passionate about?
0: I, instead, I'm going to change.
1: I'm going to answer a question a little differently. Which is like, what's the alternative? Like, what's the alternative to doing that? You're going to spend your life doing something that you hate for what twenty years? I'll give a story that's like an Arabic um, story that I learned when I was in Egypt, and it's one of my favorite stories that I think changes. It it, it really, to the right person, I think will change a lot of your perspective. So the story is there's a fisherman sitting on the beach and this business guy comes to the fisherman and he goes, do you have any fish? And the fisherman is like, Hey, sorry, I sold all my fish that I had, uh, today. I went, I went out in the morning. I came back, I sold my fish, no more fish. And the fish, the businessman is like, what, like, you're still young. You still have energy the night. Like it's still like only like 1 PM. Why don't you go and get more fish? And uh the fisherman is like, why would I do that? And the businessman is like, what? Well, like this, if you get, if you let's say you work twice as much, you're gonna get twice as much fish, and now you're gonna sell twice as much fish. And if you sell that much more fish, you can get a better rod. Okay, so now you have a better rod, and that better rod is gonna help you get even more fish. So now you're not doing just double fish; you can do triple the fish. And now you're gonna come back and sell even more fish that you can have uh, a rod. Then you can get a bigger boat. Now with the bigger boat, you're going to be able to get more fish, sell, you're going to be able to sell even more fish. Now, not just a bigger boat, you can hire someone to help you. And then you're going to have even more fish and you sell more fish. Now you're going to get several boats and you have an enterprise and you have to then manage these series of boats getting fish and they're all collecting fish and you're selling more fish and you're getting more money. Take that money, put it back and now you have automatic and now you have this entire company. It's going to be worth like this much, a lot of money and you're going to be able to sell fish to everyone in the world and you're going to be making so much money and the fisherman and the fisherman goes okay and then what and he goes and then you can retire somewhere on a nice island sit on the beach and enjoy the relaxing life that you have and the fisherman goes but i'm doing that now and i think that's like the thing that i like to think about which is if you have this like plan to like be miserable so that you can make money so that you can eventually do something that you enjoy to do eventually eventually skip all the unnecessary steps and start doing what you're passionate about Cause in a day, like, I, no one is like, I want to be miserable. People are often like, I need to be miserable so that I can do something so that I can do my passion. And I think that's the mentality. And the point is like, don't worry about like, don't do the means to an end. Like, it sucks. Like, stop wasting time with the means. Literally, if you're not enjoying what you're doing right now, like, actually, I think until you know what you want, you should spend your time trying things and discovering what you want. Cause that is like what you're going to find your passion in. And once you find your passion, do that. And like anyone who gives you this idea that you're going to need to do something to get to something, to do something, like it is just wrong. Like nothing requires that much things. And there's always a way like this world is so vast and there's so much value that everyone can bring. You want to travel the world and like see elephants, people will literally pay you to do that. Like you can do anything you want without having to go through this pathway of like trying to become a billionaire before you can go have like, go sit on the beach. Like, do you go sit on the beach now? Like, so that's like the, uh, there's no alternative. You should, if you're not doing your passion, then like you're just wasting time and it's limited. So start enjoying what you're doing.
0: Oh, Med, oh my goodness, what a chat. Thank you so much. Everything you say, I'm furiously nodding. You guys can't see me, but I've been nodding away and we so appreciate you and your wisdom. Where can we learn more about you and Narrator?
1: Yeah, so um, I'm active actually on LinkedIn because like now I'm a corporate person and I I need to use LinkedIn to talk (laughs) to people about work. Uh, so you can get me on LinkedIn. My email is, you can email me. I give my email to everyone here who's listening is ahmed at narrator.ai. You could have guessed it too. Um, and you can reach out to me if you ever want to talk. Uh, and my company is narrator.ai. So check out our website. Check out our content. We write a lot. There's a lot of interesting blogs. We try to really share some stuff that we find interesting. And if you like data and do it. And if you are a company that like is big enough and you have a warehouse, and you heard my story and you're like, that sounds ridiculous. Try it, sign up for a demo and like see if you can ask a question that we can't answer. So very available and yeah, excited to hear from anyone here.
0: Amazing. Well, we'll link them up in the show notes. Thank you so much again. And for everyone else listening, we will end with that. Thank you for tuning in to the latest episode of the Peers to Peers podcast. Powered by Shopify. Remember, peers, we're here to help you turn your passion into a business. And so is Shopify. And so if you're looking to start your biz, head to shopify.com.au for your 14-day free trial. Peers, that's a wrap. We hope you've enjoyed your introduction to our latest guest beer and that you find them as gung-ho as we do, which is our way of saying... Inspirational. For more, make sure to subscribe to our show on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts, and leave us a review. We produce with passion, and it doesn't stop here. To see what else we're up to, visit thepeersproject.com or follow us on Instagram at thepeersproject. We'll have fresh, real talk for you next week, peers. Until then, If you need inspiration, look amongst your peers.